Blog Talk Radio. Welcome to another episode of The Gluten-Free Voice. I'm Jules Shepard, and I'm your host for today's episode, um, which I'm very excited about because, you know, every once in a while we have the opportunity to invite special guests onto the show to talk about issues where I'm not necessarily the expert anymore, and I'm learning just like you are. So I'm very excited to have my friend, um, Dr. Christine Darty joining us today. She is a doctor of naturopathic medicine, and she specializes in this um, naturopathic approach to gluten intolerance and celiac disease. And she comes from this with personal experience, which I hope we're going to hear some about today, but also has, you know, really helped just so many people who have been on, you know, the journey of figuring out that they have celiac disease or figuring out that they have other intolerances to gluten and, and obviously other problems as well in their diet and has helped them to heal themselves by, you know, using some alternative and more natural approaches. So thank you so much, um, Christine, for joining us today. Thanks so much for inviting me, Jules. It's exciting to be here. Yeah, we've been talking about doing this show for a couple of years now. And yeah. I don't know why it's taken so long for us to make this happen, but Maybe I really women, appreciate it. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, probably so. Maybe it has something to do with it. But thank yeah. you for clearing your schedule so that we could have this conversation today. I think it's going to be really helpful for people to hear a little you know, more about what's really going on in their bodies and other ways that you can heal yourself and feel better without you know necessarily having to take radical measures to um, to do that through you know more conventional Western medicine. You know, the last time you and I talked, I think one of the things that really struck me was you know a lot of people have the impression that naturopathic medicine is one end of the spectrum and Western medicine is the other, and never the twain shall meet. And one of the things that was really interesting to me was you were explaining how you think that they actually work really well together. And I'd love just to open the conversation with a little more understanding of you know what your medical background is and how you feel like it fits in with you know the the society we have today that's so um, you know programmed to go to the doctor when you get sick and and take a prescription medicine or have a surgery or that kind of thing, how, how you really view that fitting in with your medical practice as well? Well, I think a lot of it has to come down to my personal experience, as you kind of alluded to. That's mm-hmm. what drew me to medicine in the first place. I was definitely one of those people who fell through the cracks of standard medicine. Um, I'd been sick since childhood. I, you know, I'd been to, oh, my gosh, people from probably every different specialty And my favorite anecdote is that one of the doctors actually diagnosed me as being too blonde, and that was the reason I was so sickly. (laughs) Wait a minute. (laughs) That's the craziest thing I have ever heard. Too blonde? I thought, even as a child, I thought, okay, that is ridiculous. Oh my so, goodness. yeah, I was so was he trying pale. to blame your um your heritage your you know yeah. I don't know northern European something exactly. I don't know I mean what that's it amazing was insane well, I was anemic and had been pretty much my whole life, so I was extremely mm-hmm. pale. I looked like an albino for the most part, except mm-hmm. my eyes are dark, 
so people on the street used to stop me. But so anyway, that just kind of gives you an idea of when they don't have any idea what's going on. It's sort of like, well, we'll pick some random thing to call it a diagnosis. <laughs> Goodness, yeah, to call it a diagnosis. Yeah, most of the rest yeah. of us, and you probably had this too, were diagnosed with irritable bowel syndrome, which is the diagnosis yeah. that they give you when oh, they can't yeah. figure out what else is going on with you. Exactly. Which it I never got the two blonde. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, right. No, that's a, that was a choice one. <laughs> but I wow. think that you're right. A lot of people are given these kind of sort of they're more descriptors of symptoms than actual diagnosis. Like I think of irritable bowel syndrome, it really just describes a set of symptoms. It doesn't describe a mechanism of what sure. causes it. And there's a lot of things that can underlie it, a lot of different causes that can cause the exact same symptoms. So those are kind of bucket diagnoses. And I was certainly given absolutely bucket loads of bucket diagnoses yeah. <laughs> when I was, you know, growing up and and uh, unfortunately suffering the whole time, you know, from a lot of the things that a lot of people with celiac and gluten intolerance, you know, some neurological symptoms, some lots of GI symptoms, fatigue, anemia, all that kind of stuff. So basically I never felt well and I never felt like I was getting answers that were helpful to me to really improve my quality of life, which was my goal. And um, so then I eventually discovered naturopathic medicine, which made a lot of sense to me because you got the grounding of all the same sciences as MDs, you know, how to do lab work, blood draws, you know, understanding all the pathology, the science, but then also having the training in nutrition and, you know, which nutrition is essentially biochemistry. It just kills me that that's considered alternative medicine. Yeah. Hmm. This is scientific. This is straight biochemistry. Well, how did this get labeled as woo-woo, you know? Right. So... Um, so anyway, that's just one of my little, you know, pet peeves with the way medicine has been kind of polarized um, between alternative medicine and uh, mainstream, when really it's just a continuum. And as we talked about the other day, it's about what finding what works best for you at that point. Um, so that's where I think they can work very well together, because essentially we focus on different things. But if you're working with alternative medicine practitioners who are really trained, like naturopaths, um, then we do speak the same fundamental language. I can look at people's labs, but I see slightly different things in them than the doctors do necessarily. So um, hopefully that long rambling answer gave you some <laughs> Yeah, well, in, you know, just a little bit more about, you know, what finally happened with you. I mean, were, were you then a product of... You know, or a success story, you know, from modern Western medicine. Did you did you stick with the alternative approach, or did that actually help you, the Western approach? Well, the Western approach uh, helped me survive because yeah. at a certain point, I was I had infertility, and I went on a detox diet and had eliminated gluten among other things, you know, mm-hmm. and done high dose vitamins and meditation and yoga, and my husband did the same thing, and we got pregnant, so that was incredibly mm-hmm. exciting. And uh, but then I didn't realize that gluten was the problem, so I went back mm. to eating, you know, gluten and ate like I survived on English muffins and cottage cheese for most of my pregnancy, Oof. which was Oof. like absolute poison. But you know, yeah. I developed gestational diabetes and high blood pressure. My thyroid went totally wacky. They, it was like both mm. hyper and hypo at the same time. They couldn't understand the labs. There, it, so and then it turned. I went into premature labor. It was a nightmare. I got childbed fever septicemia during my delivery, um, which is what, you know, killed millions of women throughout history and is pretty rare these days. So, and then it turned out that uh, three days postpartum, 
Um, I had developed a large tumor during my pregnancy, which had lodged itself up under my liver, so we didn't know it was there. And long story short, I got mis misdiagnosed with cancer and wound up having a radical cancer surgery eight weeks after my daughter was born, where oh they goodness. took out half my small intestine, two-thirds of my colon, ten lymph nodes, um, and, yeah, just completely changed my GI architecture, let's say. No <laughs> and kidding. And it turned out it wasn't cancer, so that was good. But that was really a beginning. Like, if the tumor had ruptured, it was, um, you know, necrotic, they call it. So yeah, it was liquefied. Right. If it had ruptured, mm -hmm. I, I absolutely would have died um, yeah. quickly. So it, they definitely saved my life. Um, but then I went into what they called surgical immune failure. So for the next two years, I had one massive infection after another. I mean, six cases of bacterial pneumonia. You know, I'd have severe bouts of vertigo where I'd fall down and start vomiting in the middle of play dates and have to be carried off by ambulance. I mean, oh my and my doctors were like, well, we took too much of your GI tract. You're now, you know, surgically immune compromised and there's nothing we can do about it. And, of course, I was still practicing medicine and had a baby in daycare, so you can imagine how much exposure I had yeah, right, <laughs> to infections. Right. So that seemed extremely dire, and there was basically nothing they were offering me. Um, so one day I was reading a magazine in my waiting room waiting for my first patient, and I came across an article on celiac disease. And it said, do you have, you know, infertility, unexplained anemia, on and on, you know, IBS, depression, all these things that I'd had mm -hmm. forever. And so that was when the light bulb really came on and really transformed everything. So I went gluten-free, and the great news is um, that, you know, my immune system healed itself. And so wow. I'm not at all immune compromised anymore. And, and before I was gluten-free, I was taking about 40 supplements a day trying to manage my immune system, and it absolutely wasn't working. Um, so once I went gluten-free, you know, it really it saved my life. That's what I would say. This is the thing yeah. that saved my life. Um, wow. So... Yeah, that unfortunately wasn't the end of the story. Surgically, it turned out I also had a um, brain tumor that I was likely born with, and I had some heart abnormalities. Um, I had something called supraventricular tachycardia, where my heart rate would just spontaneously shoot up to 250 beats a minute. Um, so goodness. I had to... Yeah, I have to have I mean, I've worked out hard before, but I don't think my my heart has ever gotten anywhere close to that, even oh. on my hardest workout. I can't even imagine that. It does not feel good. Let's just say no. that way. Oh my goodness. You can't really move. You can't breathe. You feel mm -hmm. absolutely horrible. And it would click back in. It happened for about five years before they would catch it. I would wear monitors. I would right. you know, go and I did all the right things to try and get it diagnosed. But it would always just spontaneously resolve right before they hooked me up to the EKG. It's like when you take your car like, into the shop. <laughs> it doesn't make that funny noise anymore. Exactly. <laughs> yes, that funny noise didn't appear again. But when it did, mm -hmm. then it resulted in having... Having, you know, um, so I had actually 11 hours of cardiac ablation. I had a very rare type of arrhythmia, but ablation is where they go in and kind of um, basically therapeutically damage some of the nerve pathways in the heart so that the right pathways control the beating. Otherwise, it gets hijacked by these sort of crazy pathways spontaneously. Wow. So anyway, it worked out well. I had a wonderful heart uh, electro cardiologist who did a brilliant job and my brain surgeon was phenomenal I had to go to LA to find the one guy who knew how to operate on these extremely rare tumors <clears throat> so anyway that's where I come from when I say 
they can work well together. Like, uh, there's no way I could have fixed my brain tumor or my heart problem mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> or my tumor with, you know, herbs or acupuncture. My husband's sure. an acupuncturist, so I'm a huge fan of that. But, um, yeah, so yeah. that's where I come from that's probably a little different than most other Yeah. Um, well, and I think, you know, medicine. you and I talked about this before. I, the way I see it is that, you know, your avenue of practice is about, you know, really, really strong in the area of prevention. And certainly, you know, you um, also help plenty of people who have already developed problems. But you're very big into prevention of, you know, any problems, current or future. And the way I see more of the Western medicine is, you know, they're responding to the problem once it develops. They're not really into prevention. So you had a brain tumor, they took it out. Perfect. I mean, without that, you you would have had major problems, right? But they weren't around to help prevent the onset of celiac disease or to help prevent the the problems that you had developed with your GI system. Um, They were responding by taking out a chunk of your intestinal tract or by removing the tumor. So. I think there is definitely a place, you know, when you have an acute problem or if you have, um, you know, something obviously surgical that needs address. Structural, yes. Um, But I'm very interested to hear when, you know, patients come to you and are presenting with these types of symptoms that you were describing earlier that could very easily be celiac disease, could be Mm -hmm. plenty of other things as well. You know, as a naturopathic doctor, what do, what do you do when someone comes in and says, I have anemia, I have um, GI issues, I have fatigue, I have infertility, or, you know, these battery of symptoms that we all know can be associated with celiac disease or even gluten sensitivity? The first thing I do is see if they've ever been tested for celiac, which, you know, earlier on in my practice, so it's been 10 years that I've really been focusing on celiac. It was 10 years ago that I went gluten-free and really got the zeal of the converted about what an incredibly important mm-hmm. piece of the puzzle mm-hmm. gluten is. Um, but that's when I, you know, started seeing more and more people who hadn't been screened. It's interesting over the last 10 years and certainly over the last three years, now the vast majority of the patients I see have already gone gluten-free. They've already been tested for celiac. So early on, I was absolutely testing everybody. But I would find that a lot of people were not celiac, even though they had all the classic symptoms. Um, but they would respond incredibly well to the gluten-free diet. And I think part of where this piece of medicine fits in is that I function a lot in what I call the gray areas. You know, in mainstream medicine, it's black or white. Your labs are either absolutely positive or absolutely negative. There's mm-hmm. not a whole lot of borderline given a lot of credence, you know. And they say that 85% of any medical diagnosis is based on testing and only 15% of the patient's symptoms count towards the diagnosis. Whereas I would say that's where one of the ways that I totally differ. I'm very focused on a person's symptoms because that's what gauges their quality of life, you know. Mm-hmm. And that's the thing that I always keep at the forefront. I want people to feel good and feel happy and healthy. And so I focus a lot more on the symptoms, whether the labs really support what I'm saying or not, you know, Mm -hmm. whereas for years I had doctors saying, oh, your labs are negative, there's no such thing as gluten intolerance, you're just a, you know, celiac wannabe kind of thing, you need to be on antidepressants, Mm -hmm. (laughs) and so... Sounds it's like true. I mean, you know, we're we're yeah. you know not we're not laughing because it's funny, but we're laughing oh, because no. it we hear it 
all the oh. time, and it's amazing that we still hear it after all of the oh, um, yeah. education and awareness that we have all been in this community trying to spread, not just in among the patient population, but in, among the, the physicians. And to, to continue, even today, in 2013, oh, yeah. after all we've been through, and to hear stories that we still hear every day of people being told yeah. by their doctors that it's all in their head, or they're a celiac yeah. wannabe, <laughs> like you said. Yeah, yeah, when right, yeah. I mean, it's it's just astounding to me that physicians don't listen more to what's yeah. really going on, which I think is what what you're saying that that you really try to do in your practice. Absolutely, I, I used to joke that I wanted to install a you know a brick wall in my office that I could just beat my head against. Frustrated <laughs> hearing the same story over and the patients and could over, too, <laughs> literally a thousand times, and then they told me to take antidepressants. It's like, well, no, yeah. you you have a real problem that could really be yeah. fixed, but it's not fixed by a drug. It's fixed by food in this case, right. you know. Right. But now I found it's gone to a new level in terms of a lot of people are coming to see me that have gone gluten-free. They either got better initially for the first year or two often or, you know, only a certain spectrum of their symptoms got better. So sometimes mm-hmm. I'm now trying to go back and figure out what diagnosis they actually have. Are they celiac? Are they not? You know, so that's a big thing I'm now trying to retroactively figure out for a lot of people. But also yeah. take them to the next level where the gluten-free diet leaves off. And so that's another piece that is, you know, really becoming more um, important because I think fewer and fewer people are getting long-term lasting health from their gluten-free diet. You know, mm-hmm. the statistics are showing that. So, And that's where things like fructose intolerance come in. You know, these secondary problems like small intestinal bacterial overgrowth and some of these sneaky and insidious things that even though people are maybe doing a fantastic job with their gluten-free diet, they're still not feeling well. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So that's and, and we've definitely been hearing more about that recently than we ever have before. Um, mm-hmm. I know it was sort of viewed in very simplistic terms, at least when I was diagnosed in the 90s. You just go off gluten and you're done, you know, and yeah, as if exactly. the doctor even knew what that meant. <laughs> they, yeah, they had no right. idea where gluten was or, or how to find it or avoid it, but they just right. knew that you were supposed to. Um, but, yeah, we're seeing more and more people who – you know, it's not just the gluten, and and that's no. why you know my book, Free for All Cooking, that I that I wrote, my most recent book, really addresses that sort of phenomenon of you know, okay, so now you figured out you have to avoid gluten, but what if you have to avoid more than gluten? And and a lot exactly. of people you hear them now say gluten's the easy thing to avoid. What about you yeah, know, if I have to avoid soy <laughs> or if I have to avoid fructose or you know, then it gets really complicated. So we're finding yeah. so many people don't simply have one thing that they have to remove from their diets. How would you find out if a patient came in and like you said they sort of self-diagnosed or they they you know tried going on a gluten-free diet and and found that they felt much better so they don't know if they have celiac or not but they don't want to go back on gluten to do the gluten challenge for the celiac tests mm-hmm. and maybe they do have other things going on besides just gluten what would you do with that patient how would you find out you know what's really going on well, the first thing I do is actually looking at all their labs that have been done and then spend an hour and a half doing their whole history. So it, the history is often the key. So testing-wise, I pretty much never put people back on gluten as a gluten challenge, especially if they mm-hmm. got dramatically better. When you know, right. The chances that they're going to get dramatically sick are big. <laughs> yeah. It's not worth it, mm-hmm. frankly. My goal is not to make them sicker. Remember, quality mm-hmm. of life is important. So that's where I do the celiac genes, the HLA, DQ2, and DQ8. And that was one of the fascinating things that came out of the symposium a few weeks ago, that they found a lot of people who are gluten-sensitive, gluten-intolerant, actually do have the HLA-DQ2 genes. 
And since the conference, I've been going back and looking at a lot of my patients who were diagnosed or who we found definitely couldn't eat gluten, but they weren't celiac, but they did have the HLA-DQ2 gene specifically. So I feel vindicated that I've been doing that all along because if the genes aren't there, the chances are that it's celiac are extremely small. So right. that's where it's useful and it's not dependent on having gluten in their diet. A lot of times I would just redo the gluten test anyway because a lot of people aren't as gluten-free as they think yeah. they are. Mm-hmm. You know, that's another statistic that came out of it was that, you know, 50% of people who, you know, think they have re- refractory sprue or who aren't responding to the gluten-free right. diet are still consuming gluten all the time. <laughs> so yeah, a lot of people will tell me they're gluten-free, but they're allowed right. to tell a different story. Yeah, well, I, I mean, I have, you know, people who, <laughs> I, I guess I shouldn't necessarily admit this, but, you know, I have very <laughs> good friends, I have family members, you know, who have celiac disease and also very good friends who have celiac disease, and every once in a while you're having conversations with them, and they'll say something like, you know, yeah, we were at the movies last night, and I got a big pack of Twizzlers, and blah, blah, and I'm oh, like, what? What are no. you doing? And they had no yes. idea gluten was in Twizzlers. So you know, just You're random right. things like that that happen where yeah. you can't know everything. You'd be as vigilant as you possibly can, yeah. but not, you're not always going to know that there is gluten in your prescription drugs or, you know, that kind oh, of thing. Absolutely. It's, it's, it, it is very hard to completely eliminate gluten. So it's a really good point that you make about, you know, maybe just test them anyway because well, that's, yeah. they, they could actually still be getting it. Mm-hmm. Well, and a lot of people they're finding now, too, it can take a year for your TTG to come back to normal even when you've been gluten-free. So that's one of my things. The other thing is I test them for an IgE wheat allergy because, you know, that's the other thing. It's supposed to, you're supposed to rule out celiac disease and wheat allergy before you diagnose somebody with gluten sensitivity. Well, I'm finding practically that never happens. You know, um, mm. even I find a lot of patients I share with people have been to the various celiac centers. You know, and I definitely have a lot of patients from Beth Israel and uh, Columbia, and some from the Mayo Clinic and Stanford. But that's where um, you know I find that practical piece isn't happening because it's more it falls into the wheelhouse of the allergists and not the gastroenterologist, mm-hmm. you know. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's something that I do, and I do it through typically Quest Lab. They have a lab called the ImmunoCap IgE test for wheat. Um, so I do that, and then I also do some of the, you know, uh, markers for, like, gluten sensitivity, which is the IgG tests. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, so that's the testing I do, but the IgG is also negative if somebody has been completely gluten-free. So that's sort of my starting point um, with most people. And then based on their history, a lot of times they may have another food allergy. They may have an infection, which is common. So I see a lot of H. pylori. Um, you know, I see um, certainly other bacterial infections. They may have an intestinal yeast infection. Um, some people have picked up a parasite. Parasite, in which case it doesn't matter what they eat, they're still going to have symptoms every time they eat. And mm-hmm. they're the ones who become more and more limited because they're trying to find the food trigger, but it isn't a food trigger, it's an infection. Mm-hmm. And so it has its own independent mechanism. So that's one of the things in the history that really points me in a direction. Um, and then I look at other intolerances. So they may have other allergies. For instance, I'm allergic to eggs on top of, you know, gluten. Yeah. So, you know, that's a common thing. Well, there'll be one other. We, we have at my office from a lot of the testing, I do what we call the trifecta of allergies, which is gluten, dairy, and eggs. <laughs> So mm-hmm. a lot of people have that combination, which is brutal. Like you said, they're the ones who are like, wow, the gluten-free diet was the easy part. 
Yeah. So, mm-hmm. yep, so I do a lot of that. And then looking at nutritional deficiencies, too. Like if you're vitamin A deficient, you don't secrete bile properly, so you can't digest fat properly. Uh, so definitely glutamine deficiency can cause, you know, ulcers and uh, abdominal pain. So there's a lot of nutrient pieces that uh, often if you correct those people's, you know, um, symptoms get better. Molybdenum, which is a mineral, can really make a big difference for some people with their gas and bloating. So, yeah, I think that's kind of the quickie overview. There's some rarer ones than that, but that's sort of the most common stuff I wind up dealing with. Well, and how would you find out about the nutritional deficiencies? Do you take? Do you is that a testing thing as well, or do you just sort of look at the person's diet and and say, oh, you clearly aren't getting enough iron, or or what have you? Yeah, and that's it. Some of it's absolutely through the history. You can tell, you know, certain people are at risk. There's definitely blood tests that you can do. Um, some of them mainstream, some of them alternative. So, you know. Things, unfortunately, like magnesium, calcium, uh, you know, potassium, all that kind of stuff, when you test it in the blood through the mainstream labs, you, you only get a reflection of what's in the blood at that moment. There are what's called electrolytes, and they help control the beating of your heart. So the body will sacrifice every little bit of it everywhere else to keep it normal in the blood to keep mm-hmm. the heart beating properly. So it doesn't give you a good reflection. People with osteoporosis often ask me, why can't we check the calcium in the blood to see if I'm deficient? And it's like, well, because it does, it won't reflect it in the blood unless you've got a really serious problem, you know. Um, so there are definitely challenges to getting accurate testing. There's some alternative labs that I do sometimes that will also, you know, that have a different mechanism. Um, so there's some from a lab called Genova, another one from a lab called SpectraCell, where they give you panels where you look at, it, you know, the fat-soluble vitamins. But a lot of times I wind up doing just vitamin D, you know, zinc, uh, serum ferritin for the iron. That's a much better measure for iron deficiency in people with malabsorption of any kind. Um, because checking just for anemia does not work with our population very well because a lot of people can be extremely iron deficient and have perfectly normal blood levels. It's like Mm -hmm. the blood adapts over time. But they'll still have all the symptoms. They'll be tired. I always say one of the big symptoms of iron deficiency is that you feel overwhelmed. You look at your to-do list and you're just like, oh, man, I cannot get through that. Mm -hmm. So that's another sign of iron deficiency, which is extremely common. So. That's really interesting. I, that was one of my biggest symptoms um, before being di- diagnosed with celiac. I mean, I had all the IBS symptoms that they had been diagnosing mm-hmm. me with for 10 years, but um, I was very anemic, and um, I'm sure I felt overwhelmed. <laughs> I think I've always yeah. felt overwhelmed. <laughs> I always had too much to do. My, my yeah, well, always been too it. long. There's always a good reason to feel overwhelmed. Right? Yeah, our yeah exactly. have a justifiable reason for that. But yeah, was, but, you know, and you look around, though, and, and what I kept getting from, um, you know, people in my life as well as from physicians is, well, if you would just eat meat again, you wouldn't be anemic right. And because yeah. I don't eat any meat. Um, and, you know, that was not something that I was willing to do to, you know, change right. my lifestyle for that. And it absolutely is not necessary to eat meat right. in order to um, not be anemic. But yeah. at the time, you know, that was that was like, well, if you're not going to eat meat, then you're going to continue to be anemic and um, be tired and overwhelmed. <laughs> so, yeah, right. <laughs> um, yeah, and once it's amazing. Once I stopped eating gluten, look at that. There went my anemia, and that was, you know, one yep. of my, my big symptoms. So uh, that's that's yep. interesting, though. I had not heard that the testing, the serology for, you know, iron deficiency um, and for anemia was, you know, not as accurate as I guess we all presume it is. 
No, it really isn't. So a lot of the sort of standard screening things don't work all that well in our population. But, yeah, somebody can be like literally one point away from needing a, you know, iron IV or transfusion wow. and their blood levels are normal. <laughs> so, But they feel oh terrible, gosh. right? So yeah. it's one of those things where they go to the doctor and everybody says, oh, your blood levels are perfect. And, I mean, I certainly fell into that category, you know. My blood levels could look fantastic, even though I had heart problems and a brain tumor and I'm missing half of my GI tract. Oh my tract. goodness! <laughs> but, yeah, and you know, it's, just, it's, it's amazing because like, uh, we just think the blood tells all. But I mean, you've told me two or three you know, facts just in the the show already today that I did not know about the inaccuracies of the serologies that we all have come to rely upon. And it makes perfect sense when you explain it the way that you did with you know the minerals and the vitamins that your body's struggling to keep for the the main um, mm-hmm. focus of of functioning so that that makes perfect sense but you know it's amazing to think that so much of us are you know walking around feeling bad and we go to the doctor and they run a couple tests and say you're fine go home and that's part of the reason why you get that you know it's all in your head thing and the more we learn about this (laughs) the more certainly we can um, arm ourselves with more information to take back to the the doctors but um, as far as supplements i hear people all the time talking about probiotics prebiotics vitamins supplements omega-3s you know is there something that you would say everybody should be taking or people who have celiac disease should be taking or people who have gluten um, sensitivity should be taking or is it really individually specific well, my focus for the most part is highly individual, so it's always hard for me to say everybody mm-hmm. can do that sure. because there's always exceptions to that rule, and our population also tends to be extremely sensitive, mm-hmm. but there's definitely some generalizations we can make. And, you know, the gluten-free diet is by nature somewhat deficient, as is, frankly, the mainstream American diet, even the gluten-containing diet, you know? The way they're farming things now, there's not a lot of the same level of nutrients that were there in terms of minerals and things like that. Um, So this is where I think this isn't bad advice for probably most people in America (laughs) to, you know, be taking some vitamins. and, And so, yeah, so B vitamins, I think, are important. They're starting to fortify food a little more in the gluten free, you know, um, arena, but in general, you're not going to get the nutrients unless they're naturally there in the plant. And there's a lot of refining of gluten-free grains going on, so a lot of people are eating, you know, white rice flour and all that kind of stuff. Um, So there's just not a lot of nutrients there. If you're already running low, depending on how long you were undiagnosed or how restricted your diet is, then you definitely become at higher and higher risk of having more than one deficiency. Mm-hmm. Um, iron is the number one deficiency in the world, and uh, so that's one that affects a whole lot of people. Literally billions of people are iron deficient, celiac or not, but it's a huge one, again, for our population. Mm-hmm. Um, and you're right, you don't have to be uh, eating meat in order to get your iron levels up. And this is where there is no one right you know, gluten-free diet, there's no one right regular diet. It's, again, you've got to find that one that fits the individual. But the diet is where you start. You want to have a broad-based, you know, nutrient-rich, whole foods, unrefined diet. I think that's just a good starting point. But beyond that, a lot of people do need vitamin D, We're just depending on what part of the country you live in. Um, but that's something I think you know, everybody should be aware of their vitamin D levels, what the right dose is for them, because it can vary hugely. <laughs> but yeah. that's one that is really hard to get from food unless you're a little big lover of liver and mackerel and sardines, which I find very few of my patients are. Yeah. Mm. You know, you can do it with diet, but most people are willing. <laughs> 
Yeah. Right. So that's where it's like, okay, there. I think I'd rather go sit in the sun. Exactly. But even then, depending on what latitude you're at, it can be very difficult. And the darker your skin, the less efficient people are at making vitamin D. So Mm -hmm. it's one of those things that if you don't, the people you would swear they're doing all the right things and their D levels are horrible, and other people who aren't doing anything and their D levels are Mm -hmm. perfect Mm -hmm. all by themselves. Mm -hmm. So Mm -hmm. I find fairly unpredictable. And the good thing is the blood test is pretty accurate for that. What would, I mean, if a person did have a vitamin D deficiency, what would that look like? What what kind of symptoms would manifest themselves? Well, interestingly, you can get a lot of GI problems. So really? you get acid reflux, yeah, and vitamin D deficiency puts you at increased risk of colon cancer. Um, so, yeah, so you can see what I see is um, acid reflux. They'll sometimes have mild IBS symptoms that will respond, but it doesn't usually fix IBS. I wish vitamin D did. But yeah, I'm no kidding. Can't say it does. Occasionally it'll fix somebody's GERD or acid reflux heartburn, but it won't necessarily fix IBS. Depression is a big one, so it can definitely affect people's mood. Some people, they literally start taking it. They say it's like the sun, the proverbial sun comes out. You know, their mm. outlook, their disposition changes radically quickly once they get vitamin D. Um, it can also be good for um, balancing blood sugar, hormone balance, um, preventing infections, so frequent infections, frequent sinus infections, that person who catches everything that goes around, um, that can be another, you know, pointer in the direction. Uh, your teeth being loose, I know that sounds weird, but it's <laughs> yeah. one of those ones that can point, If you know, if your teeth are a little wiggly, definitely get your vitamin D level checked. And uh, I think in terms of your previous questions about the probiotics and the essential fatty acids, those are also very common deficiencies if people aren't eating enough, uh, you know, really good quality fish. And that's not Atlantic salmon. The farm salmon just doesn't have the same stuff in it as the wild salmon from the Mm -hmm. colder waters. So, again, if you've got to know what you're eating to make sure if you don't have a dietary source and you hate fish or, you know, Mm -hmm. you're strictly vegan, then you have to make sure you're replacing that because they are literally essential. And our brains are made, uh, 25% of our brain is made of DHA, which is one of the um, things in fish oil. And there's really only one vegetarian source of it, which is um, like the algaes, basically. Mm-hmm. So, And our bodies can't make it efficiently otherwise. So those are things. Be aware of what you're eating. Be aware of what you're at risk at for. Um, and then either make sure you're getting plenty of it in your diet or that's when supplementation for most people becomes more practical. Um, yeah, and then probiotics are the key. Yeah, and I feel like every other day you read an article that says, you know, from an expert, you know, oh, you shouldn't be taking essential fatty acids because it's just right. a waste of money. Or probiotics yeah. are, you know, half the time they're not even live anymore and you don't know what you're trying right. to take and you don't know which probiotic you need, so don't take any. You know, and then you sort of find yourself throwing up your hands and saying, well, I'm not going to waste my money on something that right. I shouldn't be taking or isn't really working for me anyway. Um, but, you know, you're saying that you still think that the essential fatty acids are important to take in supplementation unless you're getting enough of it in your diet. Yeah, well, and that's it. You've got your choice with all these things. Either you figure out what the dietary source is and you make sure you're eating them on a regular basis and you're aware of what's happening to your levels, or or and or you, if you're not into doing the food part, then you have to do the more you know uh, supplemental approach. Mm-hmm. And I think for a lot of people, if they had undiagnosed malabsorption for years, their levels are rock bottom. And even if they're eating a balanced diet, there's not enough to fill the tank back up, if you will. You know, and yeah. that's where supplements can be really useful to build those levels up and help keep them up. 
Um, so sometimes you just can't get there because, I mean, one of the studies that just shocked me to the core when I was first getting into this was um, when I went to the um, NIH consensus conference on celiac, which I think was in 2004, and one of the statistics was that 50% of celiacs still had multiple nutritional deficiencies 10 years after going gluten-free. And I was just like, that is wrong. <laughs> that does yeah. not need to be that way. And, and nutritional deficiencies cause symptoms, which means they're making you sick or, you know, you're having some kind of physical problem as a result of it. They're not just kind of theoretical, like, oh, you have a deficiency and it's just in your blood. No, it means you're tired or you're irritable or you're not sleeping well or, you know, you could have a bone fracture from stepping off a curb or, you know, they're very yeah. practical in real world, but most people don't know what the symptoms are and or they're just told to live with it because, unfortunately, most of the doctors don't know what the symptoms are either. Yeah. So, yeah, so that's where it became my sort of um, goal to find solutions, which, as you know, I started, I have my website, glutenfreevitamins.com, so... Um, so that's where I have some of my solutions, but there's certainly, you know, lots that you can find over the counter. You just want to make sure if you're taking supplements that they're gluten-free. But if you don't mind, I'd love to talk a bit more about probiotics because I really Please think do. they that are critical. Please do. That was my next, that my next question because people, you know, talk about this all the time, pro and prebiotics as well. Maybe start out exactly. just briefly explaining the difference between probiotics and prebiotics and then tell us Absolutely. What, what you think we need. Well, the analogy that I come up with to explain this to my patients in terms of pre and probiotics is you have to think of the gut as like the fish tank, and probiotics are like the fish in the tank, and then prebiotics are the fish food that keeps the fish alive in the tank. So if you're not feeding the fish, then the fish will keep dying, and you'll just have to keep taking more and more probiotics because they're not, you know, thriving in your gut. They're not colonizing. So basically, prebiotics are types of fiber. Um, it's been shown that the gluten-free diet, there was an interesting recent study, that the gluten-free diet is low in prebiotics for most people. It seems that there's something in wheat that is not present in any of the gluten-free grains that really helps the right bacteria thrive in our guts. Mm -hmm. And uh, I got the reference for that. I wrote the section on probiotics and digestive enzymes for the celiacnow.org um, website. So it's got the mm -hmm. actual references for that. But that really struck me. And I think that's part of the reason we're seeing so much uh, small intestinal bacterial overgrowth. And like, so the gluten-free diet alone is often not enough to keep those fish happy in the tank. <laughs> so we yeah. tend to get piranhas are starting to colonize the Ooh. tank. Doesn't sound <laughs> so good. that's where... Yeah, it's becoming a long-term challenge. So making sure you're getting enough fiber is, I think, an important and just, you know, kind of basic thing. And there's some good prebiotics in things like brown rice. But if you're eating all white rice, you're not really getting that. So mm -hmm. it can be dietary. Um, artichokes have very high levels of um, prebiotics. So, again, the thing you need to remember is it's the food that feeds the probiotics. And then the probiotics are basically bacteria that are um, healthy for us. So at the, you know, the Celiac Disease Symposium just recently, they talk about it like you have the genome that you're born with, which is the, the genes that you inherited from your parents, including those celiac genes for all the celiacs out yeah. there. 
and Thanks, then Mom you've and Dad. got <laughs> yeah exactly and then you've got what's called the microbiome which is all the genes that are in all the bacteria that are in your gut and there are about 2 to 3 pounds of bacteria about 100 trillion bacteria in everybody's gut that's what you want and so people think well one capsule or I don't want to overdose well when you think of it you've literally got pounds of bacteria in your gut you wow know? And if they get out of balance, there's a, a conversation that happens between the microbiome, all those bacteria and their genes, and all of our genes. And they think that's now a big part of what triggers celiac in the first place, is the microbiome yeah. gets knocked out of balance. So the wrong bacteria start talking to our genes, and that's what switches on these, you know, potentially dangerous genes like the celiac ones. So I think long term, it's actually an incredibly important piece of the puzzle is to get the right bacteria. And you are so right about all the finding the right probiotic is a challenge. Yeah. <laughs> so true. this is where I, I wish I could tell you I had the fabulous answer to find the right one. It seems that people have a genetic predisposition, which kind of makes sense now that we know that our genes talk to their genes. So people in families tend to tolerate the same types of bacteria. And whereas we could all have different types colonizing us that are healthy for us. So it isn't just like everybody needs this one strain, it's going to be perfect for everyone. Right. It comes down to a lot of trial and error. But what I tell people is that in general, more is better once you find one you tolerate. Um, specific strains do specific things. We're starting to understand a tiny bit about, like there's one called lactobacillus rhamnosus that is really good for people who have depression. You know, so this is where it's like, oh, they seem to have these, you know, specific effects. Lactobacillus infantis is one that can have a big impact on how much you react to gluten. There was a great study presented at the symposium about that. So they're starting to hone in on specific strains. Um, but what I find practically in my practice is that we have to try certain ones. You get to know the different brands, like, you know, in my case, of ones that I know will work and are generally strong. Um, but the other thing you can do if you want to go more towards a dietary approach, which I recommend, um, but again, a lot of people don't want to do it, is make your own yogurt. Um, and if you're mm -hmm. dairy intolerant, you can make, you know, coconut kefir and various other alternatives. Um, but that way you know you're getting fresh bacteria because you literally mm -hmm. cultured it yourself. <laughs> yeah. And it's a lot less expensive. You know, it's actually very easy to do. And you can actually take a lot of the different capsules. I did this with a lot of my probiotics in my office is I took them just to see were they alive and actually made yogurt out of, you know, a couple capsules to make a whole batch of yogurt. And the different bacteria used will influence the taste of the yogurt um, so you can tell they're different, but that's yeah, one that's way really to really interesting. extend. Yeah, to extend your probiotics is to actually, you know, culture them yourself. Wow, so, that's yeah, really so interesting. So again, if you have a dietary source, great. You know, if you're making your own sauerkraut, but if you don't have a dietary source, then I think it's very wise to find a probiotic that suits you. And the way you can tell is you feel better when you take it. You take it, and your stomach calms down, and you just you can literally feel it. So, does that so would you recommend getting a small supply of a, pr a particular probiotic, trying it and seeing if you feel any better or not, and then switching to another one if you don't? Yes, exactly. And I think it's good to hedge our bets. So, like, personally, I mean, I've been taking probiotics all along since I had my surgery and before my gut surgery 10 years ago or 12 years ago now. Um, 
So, yeah, I really think it's one of the things I can credit. You know, now when I go to the doctor, they look at me and they're like, you are perfect. How can you possibly hmm. be perfect with all these, yeah, you know, right. with these incredible structural things that have been done mm-hmm. to you? How do you not have, you know, diarrhea or constipation or anything? It's amazing. Problems. The body is amazing, isn't and, uh, it? Yeah, well, I credit how, how long it with do you my probiotics. Oh, I'm sorry, I did not mean to interrupt no, you, but um, how long do you think it would take, and we've got like a minute left, but if yeah. you're going to start taking the probiotic, how many days would you give it before you said, this isn't working for me? Um, usually about two or three days. It's usually wow, quick. that quickly. Yeah, no, it is. And some people will have bad reactions. They'll get gas and bloat, and they'll feel worse, in which case don't take that one. You know, cross it off the list. Right. Yeah, okay, not, not going to use that one anymore. No, exactly. Okay. Oh, wow. Yeah. Well, thank you so much. I hate to even cut you off, but that we're we're coming to the end of the show. This has been extremely informative. I feel like we could have gone on a, at least another 45 minutes, and I would still be taking frantic notes. So um, luckily for all of you who are listening, if you want to take frantic notes, you can just listen to the podcast again. You can rewind anytime you want to. Um, and feel free to share the link of the podcast with your friends, family, and your physicians, because it might be interesting for them to actually hear the perspective of a naturopathic um, physician as well on all of these issues we've been touching on. Thank you again so much for your time and your expertise and for being so helpful. Quickly, just give us your websites again, please. Uh, My website is glutenfreevitamins.com, and my clinic website is pointnatural.com. But if you go to glutenfreevitamins.com, you can find a link to my clinic as well. Wonderful. So thank you so thank much you for so having much. Me, <laughs> Absolutely. It was a wonderful to talk to you. Every time we talk, it's um, you know, it makes me just want to move over to um where you live and come visit yeah, you sure. and and yeah. be your patient. <laughs> but no, it's <laughs> oh, it's great. You. It's great to have you compliment. as a friend as well. Oh, thank you thank for your you. time and all of our best to your husband and um keep feeling great and doing well and um healing others. Thank you. Thanks. You too, Jules. <laughs> Bye. Bye-bye.